Okay. We are, uh, we're going to, once this gets fired up, we're going to start and watch Mark chapter 6. So today we're going to, we're going to, we're going to plow through Mark chapter 6 today. But um, even if we, I mean, if we don't get through it, that's okay too. But next week we'll still do Mark 7. Um, so, so if you have anything, you know, specific. Uh, all right. So again, as we watch the film or the, the video, a couple things just to remember, you know, he's interpreting the Bible as he, you know, he kind of tells the story. And, uh, you know, for the last few times, you know, he's interpreted the disciples in a specific manner. See how he does that again today. And um, also, too, uh, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus in the, uh, how he interprets Jesus in, in this setting um, is, is helpful also. Yeah, that's enough. All right. So we'll uh, start this. Okay. Great. Uh, Carol, yeah, thanks, Carol. Okay. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 6. Um, any, uh, any reaction to uh, the storytelling you would like to uh, mention? Anything that surprised you? I like that part where he was like, and he could not do any miracles. I can feel a few people. Right. So it's, a, it's a funny little phrase because um, at the beginning of, yeah, so, so, okay, so at the end of, so beginning of chapter 6 and the end of chapter 6 are kind of bookends. Jesus goes to this um, you know, his hometown, and nobody believes. He, he's, uh, I, I, actually, I did not write that down. Did he say he's surprised by the interview? He was, mar- he marveled. Um, which, you know, that's kind of a big word. Because other people marvel at his glorious deeds. He's marveling at the unbelief. But even in the midst of their unbelief, he's still... He still heals people. Um, and then at the end, of course, he's nobody, he can't, I mean, it's kind of chaotic at the end of the chapter and he's healing people. So uh, chapter six is a real clear testimony that Jesus, like life is just spilling out of Jesus. He is, uh, even unbelief cannot overwhelm Jesus's uh, life-giving, you know, kind of reality. We'll see again in Mark chapter nine, when a father of a of a boy says, "Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief." So, already in chapter six, we're getting this sort of picture that Jesus's the good news of Jesus can encapsulate or envelop even unbelief. So, um, Jesus is always in control, you could say. Even even if you're unbelief. Which is, uh, again, I think we talked about this with the sin against the Holy Spirit. The one who questions whether they committed it or not is precisely the one who hasn't committed it. Okay, so, 
That defines the, the father in Mark chapter 9. Okay. Carol. One thing that struck me that's always been there with the walking on the water. Yes. Jesus has set the yeah. disciples out. Yeah. He dismisses the people, mm-hmm. goes to pray. This is more than five minutes worth of time. Sure. So figure whatever. Disciples are probably out in the middle of Oh, yeah, it's got to be a few, uh, several hours. In, in Glen Ellen. Right. Seeing what's going on yes. in Wheaton. In the dark. Struck me. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. It's another little miracle that we just skip over. Skip over, yeah, right. Well, yeah, the, the whole, the whole, that whole scenario, the boat scenario, is very peculiar. And because um, time and place is really kind of ambiguous. So, Jesus, where does Jesus want to go with the disciples? Yeah, to to a desolate place. It's not a specific spot. We don't know exactly where that is. It's not like you're going to go to, you know, a specific desert or a specific wilderness. You kind of just go, and they go by the boat. Um, Of course, this isn't our first time in the wilderness, though, right? The wilderness is also the same place where Jesus went to, um, was tempted by the devil, by Satan. So, um, what we really just know about this wilderness or desolate type of place is it's where Jesus overcame Satan. So, it's a peculiar place. But, somehow the people can get there also. Now, the thing is, though, you go to a desert. How did they get to the desert? My boat. That makes no sense. I, and so the map, uh, and the map, the map in the in the uh, the drama is actually misleading because he goes to a desolate place via a boat. Um, what could he hear in the lake in Nevada? It's all desolate. Sure, that's true. Yep. Um, however. The, uh, yeah, so, so, you know, reading this, though, in a literal or kind of a materialistic way of understanding things, you would say, oh, he must have just gone a short way because people could still see him. All right? Um, yeah, as I was going to say, so then you gotta really got to take into consideration the, the, the uh, size of the Sea of Galilee. It's, just, it's really hard to make it all work in a, in a kind of a materialistic sense. So... Really, this, is a, this, this place is, you're entering into a place that's not ruled by earthly time and space. That's important for us to really realize, is that this place that they're going is now ruled by a different reality. Because you don't go to the wilderness, to, you don't go into the desolate place. Now, a desolate place means no living life. So I oftentimes use the word desert. I mean, sometimes we think of wilderness, we think of like, you know, northern Wisconsin, right? Lots of trees and, yeah. That's not, that's not really the, the best picture. The best picture is this place of desolation. So you don't go to desolation to be fed and sit on green grass. Unless this is a different kind of desolate place. 
that's ruled by something else. Okay, so of course, it, it, so it, you get a for, you get a kind of a foreshadowing at the beginning of Mark chapter six, where their unbelief is just crazy. I mean, it's just he, Jesus marvels at their unbelief, but yet he still heals people. So Jesus is uh, spilling life out of him. It's just, it, there's this, he is now entering into this uh, time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus, who Jesus is is becoming clear for us, at least. And so he goes into a desolate place, and now you, you have kind of a two-way of understanding it. Do you understand in the materialistic sense? That would be the way the disciples see it. Or do you understand it in the way of Jesus? So the disciples, so that's why the disciples go, hey, you got to, I mean, they're trying to be nice guys here. You got to send these people away. Go, go somewhere and get some food. But of course, what is Jesus? I mean, Jesus is now, I mean, he's going to, what is he expecting the disciples to say to him? How they behave. How they behave. Yeah, or, 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 Lord, how are you going to feed these people? See, they expect the, the people to take care of it. And when Jesus says, which goes to, I think, Marilyn's point, when Jesus says, you feed them, they should say, how? How can we do it? But rather, what do they go do? What do they try to do? They, try to, they, they say, well, there's no way we can do it. Well, no kidding, that's the point. You aren't supposed to do it. Jesus is supposed to do it. So, um, yeah, so this, this desolate place is a peculiar place. So then now you get to Carol's point about going up on the mountain. Now, of course, the mountain, that's a special spot too, right? The mountain is a place of God's revelation where God shows himself. Mount Sinai. And then, of course, uh, in a couple chapters, this will happen again when, uh, at the Transfiguration. So again, it's not strictly speaking a materialistic sense, but it is historical. I mean, these things have happened, so it's not like you're entering into uh, mythology. You're entering into a place that, again, is defined by Jesus' life-giving power and not by uh, how we see life. It's It's the kingdom of God breaking into the kingdom of man. So at the mountain is a place of revelation where you can see all things as they're supposed to be. So that's why Jesus can see what's going on. Um, but of course, though, which is very fat, I mean, I thought you were going to make a point. What does Jesus do when he walks on the water? Where is he walking? He's going to take care of them. Yeah. No, he's actually walking by them. Which means, it's kind of weird. Like, he doesn't really care about them. Which means you would think he's going to go to them. But then what does he say? What does this actually say? He intended... He meant to pass them, which which could mean that Marilyn, he's he's well. You're right, though, Marilyn. Okay, so this is this is where we got to go back to understanding. How does Jesus? So they're disciples. Where's the best spot for disciples? Behind. So Jesus is actually going out in front of them, and is helping them that way, making the relationship correct. But he's not helping them in the way we would think. Hey, run up to the boat and say, don't worry about it. I got it under control. It's not, but he does, he does, he does, he's a man of compassion, right? So he, 
when they scream and they freak out. They don't recognize him, by the way. They think he's a ghost. But it is the fourth watch. It's completely understandable. That's right. Comple- yeah, completely understandable. However, um, what they don't understand is not just who he is, but wh- where he's going or what he's doing. And, of course, then that comes up again in Matt, Mark chapter 8 when, Jesus, when Peter says to Jesus, you know, hey, I'm going to tell you what to do. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter just tries to get out in front of Jesus. Now, the thing is, though, so when Jesus sends them out on the boat, you, you know, one could say, well, isn't he setting them up for failure? Uh, no, he's actually sending them up for what's going to happen when he ascends into heaven. See, he already sent them out, right? He sent out the 12 to do his work. So they, and this is why it's interesting, is when he sends them out, the report comes to Herod, and it's not about these 12 guys, though, is it? This report is about, yeah, Jesus, and the confusion of who he is, John the Baptist or whatever was going on. So that's very important for us because that's instructive, is that, it's not these 12 people that are going out. It's actually the presence of Jesus going out. So then, and then that's, that's testified by the fact that Herod is freaking out about who this guy is. So then now, um, when Jesus sends them out into the boat, the boat is a symbol of the church. Now, the thing is, though, is that we also get instruction for ourselves is that the farther away from Jesus the tougher it is. But the fact that he's going to pass them by doesn't mean that they are drowning or they're falling apart. It just means they're having a tough time. But of course then when they cry out and when they, what happens when Jesus comes into the boat? Yeah, the, the winds cease. So now you have this great image of the church, of how... Um, there will be times that it appears like Jesus looks scary to us because all hell's breaking loose. But in fact, he's the one who's, you know, he's the one who told us to go and he's the one who is going to pass us by and lead us. But in this time, he comes into the boat and then everything's great. Everything's fine. Peace. Which again should remind us of the previous boat, right? He says to the wind, knock it off. And then he comes in and then he says to the disciples who have a storm inside themselves, you know, be still. All right, well, let's, uh, let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Anything else from the video? Yes, Donna. Um, the ending of the story, that was very sad. Their hearts were... Yes. Yeah, right. So, uh, and then he does that very dramatically, right? He pounds his chest again. He did. He did that a couple. He did that at some other times because their hearts were hard, and that's like it's it's really good of him to use those same motions to remind us or connect the stories. So, yeah, they were hardened. Now, uh, usually when something's in the passive voice, hardened, it's usually a divine passive, meaning that God has hardened their hearts. But it's not entirely clear in this situation that they hardened their hearts. God did it for instruction. Um, but 
the reality is, is that their hearts are hardened, and then that explains their misunderstanding. Now, the thing is, though, is that, um, you know, let's say that God hardened their hearts. Is that to make them feel bad? No, he's, he's instructing them. So, the fact is, is their hearts were hardened. When, when was their hearts hardened? And that, that's the real question when we talk about God hardening hearts. Well, no, for the disciples, yeah, in this situation, were their hearts hardened already before Jesus sent them out into the boat? It's kind of, there's kind of a good case for this. But when, but when Jesus, or when, when the Mark says their hearts were hardened because they didn't understand the loaves, that actually localizes their hardness of heart. And so God probably is the guy who hardened their hearts. But in this circumstance, then, now to, as I would say, you, you, the only heart that can be made, uh, that can be broken, or is the hard heart. And the way that God actually softens your heart is usually by breaking it. And so he has to harden it in order to break it. That sounds really rough. Um, what are idols made out of? Stone. The heart of heart is a, st- a heart of stone. And the only thing you do with an idol is smash it. You can't redeem an idol. You smash it. And so that's what you've got to do with a hard heart. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very sad. But the thing is, of course, what does God do with a hard heart? Yeah, he re- can restore it. Yeah. It's death and resurrection language. So... Which, of course, he, what, is what he'll do. I mean, he never gives up on the disciples. So it sounds like their heart's heart and he's given up on them and he's making them be this way. Well, yes, yeah, 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 he is because he wants to save them. <laughs> and that's what he does. So, um, yeah. Uh, and we'll see that again more in, in chapter 8 especially. Okay, anything else from the video that kind of stood out? I mean, it could be a phrase, not, not necessarily the way he did it, but like Donna said, something that reminded her of what's even in the scripture. Because, uh, yeah, Holly. Um, so I've always been uncomfortable with like the hair of the daughter. And, yeah, right. And, and the way that, that he portrayed it made me even more uncomfortable because I was like, yeah, I know that's what it's saying here, but like just the way he presented it was like, well, see, I, I thought that was tamer. I was thinking about showing a scene from Jesus of Nazareth, which I love that movie. I, well, actually, then there's the the Gospel of Matthew by uh, Pasolini. It's an Italian film, which I think some of you didn't necessarily like as much as I did. But I, fi- I find that, that scene very creepy because the girl is actually, um, like, middle school age. It's real creepy. Well, yeah, so, so now in the way he says her voice, right, he makes it sound like she's like a younger girl than how a lot of people might think it is that she's a young woman, right? I, we, I don't know exactly how old she is. We don't know exactly. Okay. But this, again, this is where, so this is, re- yeah, it's supposed to be creepy. It's supposed to be gross and grotesque. 
Yeah, Holly. Well, just because Herod was king of the Jews, just like how we should be of utmost high standards, but, you know, we're like low of the low right here. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, there's, uh, yeah. There's two, there's, two, there's two feeding stories in the Gospel of, of Mark, chapter 6. There's two feeding stories, and they're put right next to each other. There's the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding on John the Baptist. Those are the two stories. So how are they both feeding stories? Well, they're both banquets. Uh, they both have food served on a platter, or served in a, one is a basket, one's a platter. So what we have here is a, is, a, is a feast of death and a feast of life. Banquet of death, banquet of, of life. And they, they are stuck together on purpose. Because in the John the Baptist retelling, you have a host. Who is the host of this banquet? It's a trick question. There could be two answers. Herod. But as you read the story, who is actually the host? I think I wrote it down, so. Herodias. Why is she really the host? She's the one who's in complete control. Even though it's Herod's banquet, he is out of control. He is not in control of this situation. Now, of course, he's not in control of the situation because he gives it up. But he gives it up in a, a display of, like, ostentatiousness. Hey, I'm just... I'm so wealthy, I can give my stepdaughter up to half my kingdom. Now, the problem is, is that when he makes that vow, it's a public contract. And who is at this banquet? Everybody. Now, he actually does a good job. He actually changes his voice when he says, and all the leading men of Jerusalem. It's like a phrase, actually. It's like... You know, like this, it's a group of people, and everybody knows what that group of people is. Now, they're up in Galilee, which means then, you know, that, well, it's a debate on who Herod is, but it's probably not Herod the Great that was with um, Jesus' birth, but it's Herod the Great's son, because we know about Philip and Herod and this Herodias lady. Okay, anyways, but that's beside the point. All right. You got this group of people. Now, um, I don't know if you know how politics works, but it's usually not one that's based on trust and honor. These usually involve a lot of laws, and they, they, will, they will try to push everything in order to make themselves more powerful. So the, make, the fact that he makes a vow in front of the leading men of Jerusalem, if he does not fulfill that vow, he's going to lose all power. And those people want his power, and they are going to take it. Now, of course, who actually takes the power? Herodias. Which I find very interesting for me, because when John the Baptist says, you, you know, it's, it's unlawful for you to marry, I wonder if that's an act, actually an act of compassion. Because John the Baptist, as a prophet, knows what sort of woman Herodias is. And it could be just self-referential, like he knows she hates him, and if she becomes 
husband of Herod, then that's going to be real bad for John the Baptist. Or it could be he knows Herodias is, is going to marry Herod because she will have this great power. Yeah, Aaron. I guess it, like, it surprised me when... Because it says that uh, Herodias is the one that gets really mad about what about John the Baptist. Right. Criticizing him, so it, it kind of like confirms that. Which I mean, yep. If she were a victim of like, oh, I really want this woman, and I'm just going to take her. Right. Powerful, then I feel like she would be kind of like, thank you, John. Yeah. Right. Hey. Thanks. But instead, it's like it was probably her move. Yes. Right. That's exactly right. So this is very, this is, I mean, this, this feeding story is a very interesting story on, on multiple levels. It really reveals the characters of what's happening. So, okay, so Herodias is in control. And we know she's in control because Herod says to the stepdaughter, his stepdaughter, you know, I'll give it to you. She, of course, then asks Herodias, what should I do? Now, the thing is, though, it's interesting, and this is why I show that one image in, behind, in the uh, back of the page. Herodias just says, I want the head of John the Baptist. But then the daughter says what? On a platter. So there's the one picture by Caravaggio that has, uh, it's the smaller, or I mean the square, the square image, where... Uh, uh, well, they, they call it Salome, but um, Herodias' daughter. It's got a platter. And then the image is that whoever this person is behind her, it looks, it looks like it's a two-headed person. Now, it's a really dark image, and you can look it up sometime. Um, and that's on purpose. It's supposed to look like a two-headed person. So Herodias is is the one who's doing it. It's like it's like she's on her shoulder telling her what to do, like, you know, the old conscience, the good the good the angel and the good the, the demon. Yeah. So um anyways, that's uh yeah, so Herodias is in charge and of course then we also know she's in charge because when uh the the daughter receives the platter, who does she give it to? Yes. So the host of the dinner, no one eats until when, right? When the host sits down, right? So now it's time to eat, which is gross, right? Yeah. um, So everything that's wrong with this feast. Now, again, what's wrong is that it's gross, it's, it's nasty, it's terrible. And that, that's a little bit of the, I know you can't see this image, on the bottom, but it's obviously all these leading people, and it's it's really kind of nasty. You have all these people in fine dress, but the meal is coming, isn't it? And it's a it's a head on a platter. So, um, so Jesus talks about the, the so he's got this uh, dinner story, um, and it's going to result in death. So this, this situation is those who are in power only receive power by taking it, which means they actually really have no authority to give it. They just have to, they have to hoard it, okay? 
which results in less life, not just for John the Baptist, but for everybody. Yeah, Jan. Well, I think the other thing that you need to remember is the historical background. Sure. There are four brothers. The kingdom has been divided among the four of them, and none of them like each other. Right. And so they're all afraid of each other that somebody's going to go kill one of them. Yep. Or all of them. And one of them is going to end up as being topped off. That's right. And superstition reigned in that time. I mean, Herod recognized the idiot thing he had said. And now we've got this guy out here that some people are saying is John the Baptist resurrected. Right. Can you imagine how he felt? He's freaking out, yeah. Yeah, actually, that's a, I, I didn't think about that point, but that's actually made in a... Um, it could be Jesus of Nazareth film. I, I, uh, I think it is where they actually make that a point. Like, he clearly is this guy not that's just kind of superstitious and really beside himself. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the one. It could have also been the, um, the uh, greatest story ever told. But anyways. All right. Uh, well, great. So now you've got this feast of death. Now we're going to have the feeding of the 5,000. So everything that's wrong with the previous sto- this story is... Everything's right in the feeding of the 5,000. Who's the host? Jesus is the host. Does he take power from people? No, he gives life to people. Does he eat, does he eat first? No, in fact, we don't even know if he eats. He makes sure that everybody else has food. And not just a little bit. So much more than they can handle. Which... I've used this template as our uh, catering meals for catering meals at St. John. So, a lot of people say wasted food. I say fulfillment, fulfillment of the feeding of the five thousand. So, okay. They ended up with more than they started with, which was awesome. Exactly. So, okay. <laughs> All right. Anyways, um, okay. Yeah. Okay. So Jesus is the host. Uh, he's not out of control. He's in complete control. The disciples think everything is out of control, but he knows exactly what's happening, and he does everything that needs to be done in order for it to give life. And at the end of the story, there's more life than, uh, than the story started. And that's really important for us because that, uh, that image is uh, kind of a messianic image. Um, the five loaves kind of symbolically has been kind of the five books, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Twelve baskets have been symbolic of Israel. The one thing, though, about the feeding of the 5,000 is um, the backbone of this story is Psalm 23. So what does Jesus say about the crowd? They are sheep without a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, okay? What does he do? Green pastures, they're in a desolate place, but it's a green pasture. Um, He restoreth my soul. 
I, I usually like say it from the beginning. I guess I could read it. I might just do that rather than saying it over and over again. Uh, he restoreth my soul. So he, he uh, uh, it fills us up with life. Our life, our uh, soul is, um, still waters. Oh, Pat, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Uh, he's lead, well, he's leading the people out. And then even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's the desolate place. I will fear no evil. Why should they fear no evil? Because you're with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, of course, they already should know that because, well, maybe they shouldn't. We don't, we don't know exactly if the disciples are aware of Jesus' 40 days in the deserts, desert. But he, know, he knows, well, we know, that his rod and the staff, they comfort me because um, he's kicked butt in the, in the desert. And he's prepared a table in the presence of my enemies. So he's gone out in the presence of his enemies, which is Satan, of course. And he said, hey, we're going to eat here. And the cup overflows. Twelve baskets full. And um, truly goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I should dwell in the house of the Lord forever, the, the kingdom of God. So uh, it's a, it's this messianic thing. So Jesus is showing himself to be the fulfillment of all their uh, desires, their, you know, their longings for this Messiah to come and feed his people. Also, too, Jesus is the new Moses. So this is all part of the Messiah. Like, there's going to come a prophet after me, like me. That's Deuteronomy 18. I can't remember if I wrote it down. Yes, 18, okay. And so, what does this prophet do? He feeds the manna, he feels the, the quail, so you got the bread and the, the fish. And Well, then I already mentioned that other stuff. Oh, and the word for basket is distinctly a Jewish word. I had that in my notes from a while ago, and I don't remember what it was. So, um, Yeah, great. I don't, remember, I don't remember what the word is, though, but I know it's true. Because it's different than the other one. And okay, Jan. You know, we look at if we look at this whole chapter. You've got him sending out the twelve, and the twelve were able to cast out demons and heal the sick. And you turn the page, and they stand there when Jesus says, "Well, you need to feed the people." Right. They came back from you know performing miracles. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. But isn't that like we are? Something good happens in our life. Yep. Three days later, we're like, oh, you can't do this, God. <laughs> yes. It's a life of faith. Uh, every day we wake up and make the sign of the cross. And we drown the old Adam so that the new Adam would rise. I mean, that's. So this goes to virtue making. So Christian life is filled with habits. Things just don't come along. <laughs> um, you have to wake up every day, make the sign of the cross. I mean, it's in the small catechism, which, you know, I, I, yes, like when I've been talking to confirmation kids about purity, chastity, and, uh, y- you know, what we talk about 
for most modern ears is like, what? You know, to live a life of purity, to live a life of chastity, modesty. I mean, that's like crazy talk, kind of with the, the amount of like sexual uh, sin out, you know, out in the world. But I said, well, it's just one day at a time. You've got to wake up in the morning, make the sign of the cross, kill the old Adam so that the new Adam will rise. Do this every single day. And of course, that's why Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. It's redundant. You really shouldn't have to say that, but we need it. So, it's, and then that's again, that's why the, the disciples in the Gospel of Mark are so instructive for us in our daily life. These are the, one, these are the pillars of the church. The apostolic ministry is handed down through them. The church, I mean, it's built on these people. But, of course, it's Jesus who's the one that's in the midst. Carol. Something that, that struck me with all of this, sends the disciples out to do yeah, right. work. They come back really hyped. Yes. And Jesus takes them away really for debriefings. Right, yeah, right, yeah. He did that in Mark chapter 1. So, yeah, they're doing the same thing. I think it all usually is you sit down with the people. Yeah, right. But lo and behold, this debriefing session is very different, yeah. Very, very different. So this, that goes back to what, why Jesus was, was kind of bummed out. Because um, he, 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 the feeding story is the debriefing session. It's the feeding story is to show them who he is. And of course they don't get it. I've always thought that that uh because they didn't understand about the loaves as a peculiar thing. Because it's it's in the it's uh that, that story's past and they're in the boat now. I'm like, why are you talking about the loaves? What are you talking about? What about this thing that just happened? You're walking on the water. Going back to the loaves. Well, that's that's exactly right. So Jesus is now, so the disciples went out. The presence of Jesus went out. They come back. They, you know, they don't, the word leisure is uh, kind of a funny word there, but they have no downtime even to eat, um, you know, which is an impossible way of working. You can't, you got everyone's got to eat, right? So, so Jesus says, let's go away. But when you go away, it's not like you do nothing for the, for the disciples. But you go away to be with Jesus. And so when you're with Jesus, Jesus is always active. Remember, he's always on the move in the Gospel of Mark. So even this kind of uh, time away is filled with activity. But it's teaching activity. And again, it's not up to them to feed them, right? So that's why they should have gone and said, okay, Jesus... You tell us what should we do, but they try to they try to solve it on their own. Again, so that's where the Christian life, when you enter into the resurrection resurrected life, you enter into the rest. The rest of uh, uh, our you know like the Sabbath. But what's interesting is that when you enter into the rest of Christ. You're precisely living, you're active, you're, you're doing things. So there's this balance where you go away to be refreshed, 
but going away to be refreshed might involve, you know, doing something. This has always been a, a peculiar thing, too, because, uh, you know, I can't remember who I heard this from, but um, when Jesus lied in the tomb, was he doing nothing? That's right. It depends on, it depends on what, which way you look at it, right? So that's the same with our, you know, with our own life. If you look at it through yourself, you're going to be doing everything and you're going to be exhausted and you are going to not make it. You're, just, you're going to break. But Jesus, when he laid, laid, was laying in the tomb, he was doing something. We say that in the Apostles' Creed, right? He descended into hell. Well, that can mean a lot of things. Um, but he definitely wasn't, he was going to hell in order to, to come back. And so we, so if we see our life in terms of like Holy Saturday, we are at rest. But at the same time, we know that Christ is active in us. So while we rest, we still live a life. We still have things, things to do. But it's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in me. So it's a very peculiar way of looking at it, right? We kind of live in a, we live like in a Holy Saturday sort of life right now. And the final resurrection could be understood as Easter. There's multiple ways of understanding time, by the way, right? Because we'll talk about, like we can live, we live now in the eighth day, right? Because we've been resurrected through holy baptism. But at the same time, we're still kind of living in Holy Saturday, where, where we are still waiting for the final resurrection. So I'm, I'm speaking all kind of metaphorically and symbolically. Okay, Aaron. Well, I've been thinking about um, this story where, you know, there's, it's such a practical thing problem that they had, like, that they needed to be people. Yeah, right, yeah, right. And I just felt like, I can identify so well with them, because it's like, I have these problems in my life, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, like, Jesus can, like, still a storm, and, like, do all these amazing records. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Like, what do I do? Like, what are we actually going to do here, you know? And... So in my daily life, I'm like, I have this really big problem. And I know God's taking care of it, but what do I actually do? Right. I think it's really actually like, so many times, even in the last weeks, you know. Yeah, well, that's that's the good question. But then it's like, um, you know, when you talk about, like you said, get behind the Satan. Right. It's like, I'm totally that way where I'm like, okay, okay, God, here's, here's our plan. Like, right. how everything's going to get better. Yep. Instead of just like, eh. but it's it's really hard and even painful sometimes on a daily or hourly basis to be like, okay, just stop and like drown the old Adam and like God is leading me and God has me and like He's going to fix this in His time and in His way. That's right. Yes, it is very hard. Um, the. Uh, yeah, also, too, like, I don't want to give the impression that uh, life on the outside will look different when you, you know, kind of live by the Spirit, 
or you are content in this, you know, sort of um, Holy Saturday sort of living. Um, yeah, it, it's important because, um, yeah, it's like at funerals. There's always a dead body. But one person could say, you know, they're alive. Which, of course, makes no sense. That's how we, a lot of people will talk, right? Even though they're dead, they're alive. Um, circumstances haven't changed. But how we understand and how we, how we hope, I mean, hope is really the, the thing that changes, is, is different. So um, that's where uh, the Gospel of Mark is also very instructive for us, is the understanding of hope. So the disciples' hearts are hardened. We certainly hope it doesn't stay that way. At the end of the Gospel of Mark, no one's talked to anybody because they're afraid. Well, we hope they do. Now, of course, in those you know, immediate circumstances, it's very hard to hope in those circumstances. But now from our perspectives, well... It's easy to hope in those circumstances. Well, what's changed? Our perspective, our our time. So that's why we can't do it alone. We need to have other people telling us the truth because sometimes it's hard for us to believe. Mark chapter 9, I believe, help my unbelief. But what is that? It's all very instructive here, and this is why the disciples kind of get a kind of a bum rap is because they didn't, they didn't do what the father did. The, the, Mark chapter 9, the, the boy's father, not, not the heavenly father. Because they should have said, we can't do it. You're going you're gonna to show us how to do this? And that's, that's where you know, Jesus kind of has an expectation that he kind of expects them to, they should have asked that. But again, at the same time, we, we hope they don't stay that way. And of course, the hopes are fulfilled. They don't, because Jesus doesn't give up on them. Um, yeah, so there's all these different little stories within the Gospel of Mark. When you kind of patch them together, it, it makes kind of this ideal disciple <laughs> where um, no one's ideal unto themselves, but together they make, they make up this perfect, I wouldn't say perfect, but uh, a really good example of, of discipleship. But it can't, it's not just one person. In fact, the only person really in the Gospels it would, be, would be Mary in terms of that. But Mary's not in the, I mean, that's Gospel of Luke, not Gospel of Mark. So we have to take everybody in the Gospel of Mark, we have to patch them all together in order to get this kind of fuller understanding of, of what a not perfect, but true, true disciple, maybe. Yeah. But that also includes the disciples. I mean, the 12. So, all right. Any last questions, and we're out of here. Yes, Kathy. In Matthew, isn't it? It's the only time I think where Peter's the one that gets out of the boat in the same story, right? Right, yeah, right. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. 
you know, the bottom line is that all the disciples are in the boat. And not everybody stepped out in faith. Uh, <laughs> stepped out in faith out of the boat. Uh, and, you know, Peter didn't sink right away. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. He started to sink. He's beginning to sink. So it's like... Yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, no, it's a very, it's a very powerful image. Yep, yeah. Rock into the water. Um, that's why I really love that picture from last week or something where they're on the boat. Right. Jesus is asleep in the boat, and, and there's guys wrestling with the sheet. Yeah, right, sure. That would be like me. I'm like, Don't worry, I have it. And uh, there's other disciples sitting in the middle going, oh, my God, oh, my God. Yeah, right. They're all in the same boat. Right. And we all take our turns being the person that's like, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. Right. And what if Jesus is like, I don't know what to do. Or we take our turn being the control freak and pulling on the sail, like, that's going to help. Uh, <laughs> or we're the ones like going like, go right to the guy, Jesus. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Yep. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's why we have to keep we have to keep all these, I mean, it's, I know it's very hard, but it, we got to keep all these, these images and these stories together because it, it shows the fullness of our life together. I, I mean, not just horizontally, but vertically. Our life together with God and our life together with each other. And each one of us has a special role in developing that community, which... I think I think you know. Next uh, next fall we're gonna. I think we're gonna study friendship. Did I tell you this already? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna look at friendship. It has to do with this this very point. Because I don't I don't know. I, yeah, it might be just for my own personal. And you're just gonna come along. Uh, my own personal spiritual maturity. Maybe I need to learn what friendship means, and maybe you'll teach me. But um, I think it's something that needs to be looked at. So, all right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.